The American History Podcast, Season 2, Episode 28. Welcome to the American History Podcast. Hosted by Sean Morswick. Alright, welcome back. Before we get started, let me remind you to visit the website to see some of the sources that I've used to help uh, create the season. While you're there, you can also sign up for the email list and join our Patreon. All of these things help to support the show and keep the lights on around here, so to speak. Finally, when you purchase things on Amazon, if you enter through the links on the website, um, that also will help to support the show, and I thank you ahead of time for doing so. I'm excited to get into the show this week, so without further ado, let's get into the song of the week, which comes to us once again via the Internet Archive at archive.org, and the song is Blowing in the Wind by none other than Bob Dylan. Enjoy, and we will talk some more on the other side. How many roads must a man walk down before you call him a man? How many seas must the white dove sail Before she sleeps in the sand Isn't how many times must the cannonballs fly Before they're forever banned The answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind The answer is blowing in the wind Yes, and how many years can a mountain exist Before it is washed to the sea Yes, and how many years can some people exist Before they're allowed to be free Yes, and how many times can a man turn his head And pretend that he just Okay, so today we are um, discussing the start of what is referred to as the Scott Campaign, or sometimes the War of 1847. In March 1847, the United States had already achieved all of its territorial goals. It had control of California, New Mexico, and the Rio Grande boundary. But the problem was making Mexico agree to the new state of affairs. So far, that had not been achieved, and it was General Winfield Scott's task to make the Mexicans agree. Now, as historian David Clary notes in his book, Eagles and Empire, Scott was determined to ensure law, not barbarity, governed his campaign. In his attempt to achieve this, he looked to the international law of war for guidance on how to control his troops, how to run the occupation government that he eventually felt he would have to set up, and even the rights of the conquered. On February 19, 1847, Scott issued General Order 20, the Rules of Conduct for the United States Soldiers on Foreign Soil. Now, unlike what Kearney set up in California, Scott designed a military government based on civil authority. Thus, they had to follow careful rules in the purchasing of supplies, the seizing of property that maybe had military value while they safeguarded other property. They also had an obligation to assist the civil authorities in the maintenance of order. 
Further, the U.S. Army was not allowed to compel Mexicans to fight, nor could they compel labor. Now, this was definitely a move in the right direction. Yes, occupation isn't something I'd argue for. Heck, I think war is 99% of the cases wrong. However, at least Scott was trying to rein in many of the worst things that happen in these situations. So how would Scott deal with crimes committed by his troops? He created, and according to David Clarity, it is Scott's most notable contribution to both military and international law, but um, he created the Military Commission. Now, he was unable to use courts martial to prosecute crimes against civilians, as the jurisdiction of a military courts martial did not cover crimes that were committed outside of the United States. Thus, he created the Military Commission. This dealt with crimes committed by his troops against Mexicans or against each other. The jurisdiction of the commission covered all of the usual felonies, along with the, quote, wanton desecration of churches, cemeteries, or other religious edifices and fixtures, the interruption of religious ceremonies, and all of the crimes of property. Um, the sentences were the standard for the day, whipping, confinement at labor, or, in the worst cases, death by hanging. Now, the one problem area was what to do with guerrillas. The Mexican government, by this stage, had authorized the use of guerrillas as part of its defensive strategy. However, the law of war at this time did not recognize irregular fighters as legitimate. International law held that war could be carried on legally only by the recognized soldiers of the state, including regulars, militias, volunteers, and the like, so long as the officers were equally commissioned and privates equally enlisted and governed by regulations. To complicate the situation further, there was little gained from treating guerrillas as criminals. Again, as Clary notes, criminalizing an opponent simply because his appearance and methods make him um, unfit for the parade ground was no substitute for counter-guerrilla tactics. Further, punishing the population would simply make more guerrillas. However, Scott decided to declare guerrillas to be bandits, giving his troops a license to murder. In central and northeastern Mexico, every dead Mexican national then became a dead bandit. Why the focus on guerrillas? Well, in the northeast, guerrillas began to wreak havoc. Tampico was effectively under siege by an occasional shot fired from the forest, something which unhinged the American commander there. He issued orders stating that the entire garrison had to turn out in the event of a shot being fired, just in case it was a signal to attack. He also fired the entire police force, fearing they were conspiring against the occupation. Where the regular Mexican army lost battle after battle, guerrillas began to produce psychological effects that far outweighed the physical damage they were doing. One example, they flooded the town of Camargo with rumors that Taylor had been whipped at Buena Vista. This put the fear of God into the commander there. And then uh, he asked the governor of Texas to call out 2,000 mounted men. In Matamoros, the newspaper reported Taylor's defeat on March 3rd, and papers in New Orleans declared that old Zack had lost 2,000 men and six guns and was now cut off from relief. The effects of these rumors were far-ranging, as they quickly made their way to Washington, D.C., where they sent the president into a tizzy. He ordered the commander at New Orleans to ask the governors of three southern states for 12 months' volunteers and to advise Scott that he might have to return to the Rio Grande. All of this was put to rest, of course, when Taylor's report arrived. Sent with a civilian volunteer, it rode with a party of 260 men, mostly Ohio volunteers, under the command of one Major Luther Giddings, whom Taylor sent to reopen the road from Monterey to Camargo with two guns and 150 wagons. 
Taylor did encounter difficulty in reopening communications with the Rio Grande, and he was forced to beef up the units who were attempting to do so. He also had to beef up the security on the wagon trains, something he could easily do with the 9,000 men he had at his disposal. Now it's time to address the main object, object of our concern, Veracruz. The eyes of both nations were upon the walled city. Strong forts dominated each end of the walls, with several smaller bastions positioned along it as well. Although about 19,000 citizens lived there in the early part of the century, by the 1840s yellow fever and warfare had reduced that number to less than 7,000. Further, to complicate the matter for the U.S. military, the harbor had uncertain and insecure anchorages, which were exposed to violent northerners. However, the city's main defense was the San Juan de Ulloa, I hope I said that right, built on a reef about half a mile off the city. Made of red and brick coral, a black coral, sorry, it was a large pentagon, mounting 136 guns and well supplied with powder. On paper, the fortress was indeed formidable. However, many of the projectiles were substandard, and while the commander, General Juan Morales, had 113 guns and 3,360 men on the city perimeter, along with 1,000 men at San Juan, the reality was they were short on rations and thus in trouble. The city he had already warned his superiors in Ciudad Mexico was indefensible without reinforcements. According to Clary, the defenses of the city lay in the hands of amateurs. Founded by none other than Hernán Cortés when he landed on the site on April 22, 1519, he originally named it Villa Rica de la Veracruz, referring to the area's gold and de dedicating it to the True Cross, due to the fact that he landed on the Christian Holy Day of Good Friday. Further, it was the first settlement on the mainland of the Americas to receive a coat of arms. In the colonial era, it was, at times, wealthier than the capital itself. However, as I noted a moment ago, by the 1840s, things weren't going well. The wife of the Spanish ambassador was appalled at her first sight of Veracruz just before the war. She noted that on one side stood the fort, and on the other was a mis quote, miserable, black-looking city with hordes of large black birds called zopilotes hovering over some dead carcasses, not a tree or a shrub or flower or bird, except the horrid black zopilote, end quote. Now, these birds were protected by law, they helped to keep the, uh, the streets clean. Another foreigner said of the city, quote, The galley slaves and the Zopilotes constitute a large part of the most useful population of Veracruz. End quote. Scott, of course, could not land at Veracruz itself, under the guns of the fortress, and without a place to drive ashore in force. According to the Navy, the best place for landing a large force was at Collado Beach. It was protected from the weather by Isla de los Sacrificios, and a reef about a half mile offshore. On March 2nd, 1847, Scott was ready. A couple of days later, the landing fleet was in position. The general now took his division commanders and staff aboard a little steamer to scout the harbor of Veracruz. They came within range of the guns at San Juan, and one fired a shot over the boat, at which point they immediately retreated out of range. That was a good thing, as at all of the guns opened fire, the American campaign might have been decapitated before it truly got off the ground. Because there was no sign of a defense at Collado, Navy Commodore Connor suggested ferrying troops to the area in the larger warships and steamers, and then rotating the supply ships in to permit a build-up on shore without crowding the waterway to the beach. All ships would be supervised by naval officers. Scott originally planned on dumping all the troops and the supplies all at once, but he bowed to the Navy's judgment, wisely I might add. What resulted was a phased landing 
similar to the pattern that would be followed by the U.S. Navy and Marines, as well as the Army and the Navy in World War II. For the landing, Scott organized his forces into three divisions, two of regulars under Generals William J. Worth and David Twiggs, and then one of volunteers under Patterson, or about 12,000 men total. Now remember, a few episodes ago I mentioned the fact that Scott, after the Battle of Matamoros, had taken a large portion of Zachary Taylor's Army of Occupation to support the Southern Campaign. Originally scheduled for March 7th, the landing was rescheduled by Connor due to the threat of a norther that was approaching. Now the storm never appeared, and finally, on the 9th, the landing took place. It was a perfect day for it. The sun was blazing in a blue sky without a single cloud overhead. Over the lush green jungles that lay beneath the beach, one could see the snow-capped Mount Orizava. The Americans were quite aware of the fact that they were following in the footsteps of Cortez. One sailor, a man named uh, Rafael Semmes, confessed that his mind was occupied by the great deeds of the Spanish conquistadors. He saw himself and his fellow Americans part of a wave of history's great conquerors, superior people pitting themselves against primitives. And this is, by the way, a common North American attitude. The Americans were not the only ones looking on in wonder. So too were Mexican soldiers. Again, according to David Clary, a small Mexican horse patrol was watching the spectacle on the dunes behind the beach. What they saw was amazing. Great clouds of canvas floating over the crystal blue waters of the bay. The scene was punctuated by rising columns of coal, uh, coal smoke from the larger vessels that lay offshore, as well as the black trails of the small steamers which were approaching shore. The big black hulks of the warships could be seen in the distance, every one of whose decks was alive with men in blue and, and blue and white uniforms. Eventually, the Mexican cavalry soldiers were driven off by a shot from a 24-pounder. By this point, about 5 p.m., the big warships had closed in behind the gunboats and the steamers. The landing itself went off remarkably well. This was, after all, the first time such an amphibious landing had been attempted by the U.S. military. Connor had ensured his men were trained meticulously, and it showed. As soon as one load of soldiers was discharged, the transport returned for another, and so on. By 11 p.m. that evening, over 8,600 men were on shore. Once the men were ashore, the barges started transporting supplies and artillery. Now, General Juan Morales decided to sally forth from the city with a small party just after midnight. An inconclusive skirmish was fought with the American soldiers on the beach, and then the Mexican party retired. Commodore Connor sent a ship to fire on the fortress, San Juan, on the morning of March 10th, and the ship and the fortress traded fire for about 20 minutes. But this was just a diversion. The real movement was that of Patterson's division, which at this point moved northward in an, in an attempt to completely envelop the city. This was done with a minimal amount of violence, and by March the 13th, the Americans had set up a seven-mile siege line from Collado in the south to Playa Vergara in the north, completely surrounding Veracruz. In the meantime, the Mexican general continued to probe the Yankee lines for holes. While the regulars were doing well, the Veracruz state militia were dispersed after attempting a frontal assault on the American trench line on March 19th. On that day, Scott's men completed a trench that stretched to the sea, and the general was ready to make his next move. While his men were all getting it, um, all for getting it over with by assaulting the city, their commander preferred a siege, as he believed an assault could cost him almost 3,000 men. I would be remiss if I failed to mention a bit of drama that involved the Navy at this point. On March 20th, Commodore Matthew C. Perry arrived in USS Mississippi, carrying orders to relieve Connor. There might have been some grumbling amongst the sailors that Perry had engineered a coup, but the reality was Commodore Connor had, on March 5th, asked to be relieved of command. 
Perry took command of the fleet on the morning of March 21st during a violent norther. At this point, both officers called on Scott, and Perry agreed to a deal that Connor had made earlier to lend some naval guns to assist with the siege. Perry offered six guns and their crews under the proviso that they fought under their own officers. This was needed because the Army's guns were not heavy enough to knock the city walls down, but the naval guns certainly were. The 32-pounder guns and the 62-pounder shell pieces won the favor of both Scott and his men. By March 22nd, the American guns began to fire on the city of Veracruz, while construction continued on more batteries. A veritable forest of guns and mortar pieces was growing up around the city. A storm hit again on the 23rd and the 24th, and low supplies of ammunition kept the rate of fire down. However, on March 25th, the landing of ammunition resumed. Now, just to backtrack a little bit, on March 22nd, six naval guns had arrived, and the construction of the naval battery was supervised by Robert E. Lee. On March 24th, those guns began firing on the city. Now, there was a major difference between the small guns of the army and the big guns of the navy, and it showed at this point. The cannons tore through the city walls, and one shot even took out the flagpole at a bastion that was manned by Mexican sailors and marines. Scott called, at this point, on Morales to surrender, but the Mexican commander refused. So the Americans increased the pressure, now using not only cannons, but Congreve and Hale rockets. These tore through the sky, emitting a frightening screech that ended when the warheads exploded, sending fragments in all directions. Needless to say, civilians in the city were already living in fear, and this simply added to the terror. Now, at one point in February, Scott had told his men that he wanted to avoid civilian casualties and win the, quote, minds and feelings, end quote, of the Mexican people. However, the decision to effectively bomb a city of 6,000 innocent people contradicts with that ideal. And this disregard for the lives of women and children had the predictable effect. It inflamed the Mexican citizenry. If this is how he treated a provincial capital, what would he do to the capital city? I should note that this barbarity was noted in the United States as well. Scott excused the bombardment, saying that it only killed three civilians. This was a gross lie. Further, he suggested the shelling was justified because he needed to leave the region before fever season. Well, whatever his reasoning, his decision to bomb the city was one which turned it into hell on earth. Now, I should mention that in the 1840s, war had rules, believe it or not. And one of those rules was that armies should avoid harming non-combatants. And the idea that Scott could claim ignorance is not plausible. He knew the rules, and he knew the terror that he was creating. His men heard the screams, quote, It really goes to my heart to be compelled to do my duty when I know that every shot either injures or seriously distresses the poor and offensive women and children, end quote, was what one officer said of this. A private wrote home saying, quote, Tonight I was put on picket guard, and I could plainly hear the people cry out for the um, I can't even say this in Spanish, but it's uh, said that they should submit to a truce for the city before they were all killed off, that the Yankees won't give up firing, end quote. Another private stated, quote, the screams and cries of the Mexicans is most awful, end quote. Now, thanks to a reporter in Veracruz, who shortly after the surrender published in a newspaper a running narrative of what happened, we know the conditions in the city were worse than these soldiers knew. This story was picked up and reprinted in English newspapers throughout the United States, and the story left a stain on Scott's reputation. For Mexicans, what he did was unforgivable. The reporter accused the Americans of being cowards who avoided open battle in favor of, quote, bombardment of the city in the most horrible manner, end quote. He alleged the first victims of the sh shelling of the city were the women and children, followed by entire families. 
The hospitals filled quickly, and at least two hospitals were then destroyed by American bombs. And this was just the first day. On the second day, there, were neither, there was neither meat nor bread. People then moved into an area that had not yet been hit, only to have the Americans shift their fire. Now, I know we might question the veracity of this report. The journalist was Mexican, so perhaps he had embellished the story. The problem is that when it was all over, journalists from across North America supported the account. Other Mexicans in Veracruz accused Scott of targeting the cathedral and the powder magazine, both of which were hit often. By March 25th, the bombardment was at its worst. At this point, Mexicans outside the city were attempting to relieve it, and although these weren't regulars, Scott's army nonetheless had to fight on two fronts. Furthermore, rumor had it that Santa Ana had 6,000 Mexican regulars who were marching down from Mexico City. This, of course, was false. Nonetheless, his commanders were seeing entire armies where there were only scattered irregulars. Thus, Scott ordered reconnaissance patrols in force. Now, General Scott could justify his bombardment thanks to the fact that Mexican General Morales refused to surrender, even though the situation was clearly lost. But there were two reasons for his stubborn refusal to accept defeat. First, there was honor to consider. But most importantly, you have the fact that the government in Mexico had a tradition of shooting generals who surrendered their post. Thus, facing no other choice, General Scott on March 25th began planning and preparing for an all-out assault on the city to be supported by naval gunfire on the fortress of San Juan. Now, thankfully, a Mexican officer appeared on the walls under a white flag later that evening and firing ceased. It appeared there might be hope for the violence to end, but it wasn't to be. Instead, what had happened is the man carried a proposal from the consuls of Great Britain, Spain, France, and Prussia, requesting the Americans allow them to evacuate women and children from the city. Scott refused, but noted he would allow the foreigners to remove themselves from the city. The foreigners refused, and the shelling recommenced. At this point, the foreign diplomats approached General Morales, who then called a council of war. His officers recommended surrender, but Morales could not bring himself to do that. So he resigned his post, or his command, I should say, to Brigadier General Jose Juan Landero. At this point, another fierce norther hit the city, breaking down the weakened walls, while at the same time the U.S. Navy had 23 ships blown ashore. At this point, the battle was over. There was some negotiating to be done, but in the end, Scott allowed the Mexicans to retain some measure of dignity, and thus granted parole to the entire garrison and freedom for the civilians to leave the city if they chose to do so. Landero accepted these terms, and the agreement was signed later that day. On the 29th, at 0800, the fortress fired a 21-gun salute and lowered its flag. At 0930, the city guns fired another salute, and the Mexican flag came down there as well. Thirty minutes later, the combined garrisons marched out of the south gate, accompanied by bands, and stacked their arms, colors, and musical instruments. The American soldiers, for their part, watched the Mexican soldiers with admiration for the grit and determination they had shown. Now, parole, if you don't know it, was at, by this point an old institution which allowed an army to relieve itself of the burden of housing and feeding prisoners of war. Instead, they were released on the condition that they could not fight again until they were exchanged for prisoners of equal rank on both sides, or on the other side, I should say. They were basically on their honor to not fight again until this happened. In Veracruz, the sick and wounded officers and soldiers were allowed to not only remain in the city, along with Mexican medical personnel, but their care was supplemented by United States surgeons. Civilian persons and property were protected, 
and the absolute freedom to continue to worship and partake in religious ceremonies was guaranteed and respected. After the surrender ceremonies were concluded, the USS Princeton sailed away, carrying Commodore Connor into retirement, along with General Scott's official report of the conquest of Veracruz. Word that the city had fallen reached Washington, D.C. on April 10th. In the end, Scott's generous treatment of the surrendering Mexican soldiers does not erase the stain on his record left by his decision to slaughter innocent Mexicans, nor did it erase that in the minds of the Mexican people. The U.S. military lost 13 killed, 55 wounded, compared to the 350 Mexican soldiers and 400 civilians who were killed and the countless who were wounded. They literally did not tally the wounded. During the siege, the Americans fired nearly 7,000 rounds into the city with a total weight of 464,000 pounds of metal. In case you think I might be blowing up or exaggerating the devastation and death that was wrought on the city, here's what some witnesses said. Captain Sindham Moore wrote his wife that it was his belief that over 600 civilians were killed, amongst them many women and children. Robert E. Lee told his wife, quote, My heart bled for the inhabitants, end quote. Ralph Kirkham wrote home saying, quote, The town is a miserable place, end quote, noting that all the homes were at least damaged and many were outright destroyed. Theodore Laidley told his father, quote, Truly it was a sorry sight to see the desolation that the shells had made among the homes, end quote. There were dead bodies everywhere, the streets were barricaded and sandbagged, and the city was, quote, absolutely filthy, most offensive odors salute you, end quote. While the civilians had left, the black vultures had now returned. Scott, in an attempt to regain the minds and feelings of the people, attended mass at the cathedral. He knew, of course, that doing so would ruin his chances in any future presidential election, should he desire to run for president, but he believed he had no choice. While it also may not have won the Mexican people over, it could at least win their tolerance. Seeing an opportunity, some civilians did return to the city to open restaurants to feed the soldiers, while others returned as vendors to sell food to the Yankees in their camps. However, not all was well, as, of course, not all of the soldiers comported themselves with honor and professionalism. A hamlet nearby named Boca del Rio, or Mouth of the River, was descended upon by a mob of soldiers and sailors. They looted a liquor store, robbed and pillaged their way through the village, raping women as they went, and finally burned most of the place down. Scott knew nothing would alienate them from the Mexican people more than this sort of behavior. Thus he appointed General Worth as military governor, closed all the liquor stores, and declared General Order 20 to be in effect. He eventually identified the Boca del Rio culprits, had them whipped in public, and one was executed via hanging. On April 10th, he hanged a camp follower for the robbery and rape of a Mexican woman. One American officer wrote to his wife, suggesting that, quote, it would not surprise me at all if this should lead to a peace very shortly, end quote. He thought the only problem might be the Mexican leadership. He was wrong about peace arriving shortly, but he was correct about the leadership. On March 31st, word of the fall of Veracruz reached Mexico City. Santa Ana, rather than immediately sue for peace, instead issued a bombastic statement, and began raising a new army. Quote, Mexicans, your fate is the fate of the nation, not the Norte Americanos, but you will decide her destiny. Veracruz calls for vengeance. End quote. The battle for Veracruz might have ended, but the War of 1847, the final and most brutal phase of the war, had begun. Okay, well, that's it for this episode. Sorry to end, on, end it on such a dour note. Um, 
But we are now entering the end game of the war. If you've enjoyed the show, please head over to iTunes and give us a five-star review. Also, share the show with your friends and your fellow history nerds. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>